Last week, uh, at the end of class, I asked you to read through Revelation chapter 1. I hope you did, and I hope you pursued the, the question that we left uh, with, with that chapter. What passages, Old Testament and or New Testament, provide similar descriptions of Jesus? And that, that could be just a word, it could be a large majority of uh, what we're given there. Uh, and the description itself is, well, we'll talk about it more today. But the description itself uh, kind of starts in verse 5 uh, through 8 there, and then picks up again in verse 12 uh, through, what is it, about 18? Yeah. Uh, so there, there's quite a bit that's said there about Jesus. John is drawing from many places to uh, give this kind of description. What did you find? Or did you not do the homework? Failed. Every sin. No, that's okay. Did half of it? You read chapter one? Three. One through three. Oh, okay. But I didn't do the exercise. Fair enough. Okay, anybody make connections, that sort of deal? Yes? I guess I didn't get the Old Testament, but I have faith... uh, Faithful witness in Revelation 1 5, 2 13, and 3 14. Okay. And verse born of the dead in 1 17, 2 8, and 22 13. Living one in Revelation 1 18, Luke 24 5, and keys of death in 1 18. I didn't find anything else. Okay, yeah. Um, so some of those, uh, some of those were. Uh, internal connections, and we'll we'll note some of that today. Uh, where a a description here at the beginning is going to be brought up later throughout the book of Revelation uh, to kind of keep us on theme of who we're talking about. Uh, so when we have these descriptions later, we go, "Oh, I remember that description from chapter one." You know, we're still we're talking about this individual. Uh, it's not just a series of. A bunch of symbols. There are a lot of symbols and imagery and all of that, uh, but there's a lot of tying together through there. Okay, anybody else? Did somebody make it into the Old Testament? <laughs> I, I didn't do the exercise. But you got a thought? But just looking right here, is um, the kingdom of pre- or praise serving? Yeah. The, the Deuteronomy? Or, ex- or Exodus? Uh, yeah, Exodus. Yeah. Exodus, and uh, Peter talks about that idea too. Um, but yeah, the Exodus, uh, where God talks about Israel becoming a uh, kingdom of, of priests uh, to him there. Uh, so that certainly is, uh, I think, a reasonable connection to make. What else? You'll have more homework at the end of today's. Look, here's the deal. The the goal of the class, as I said last week, is to provide the tools in order to pursue answers to questions. This isn't Jack's commentary on Revelation, though I will share what I think about certain things and all of that. Uh, It's more important to me to give people... Uh, the ability to pursue things instead of 
just pursuing them and saying that's what I think about it. Uh, so to that end, the the questions and all that sort of stuff are, are geared towards that of like, all right, I'm going to explore this on my own and write stuff down and see what happens. And I'm probably not going to call you out as being, you know, wrong or something within class. I'll just be happy that you're pursuing those things because that, that's the goal. Okay. Uh, the book of Revelation, as we've established, is a book full of symbols and illustrations, and that includes its descriptions of individuals. Today we'll look at some of the descriptions used of Jesus, as well as, potentially, depending on the time, uh, the good heavenly beings, at least a little bit, uh, where their Old Testament connections are found, uh, and why that's important to know uh, in our in their context, in our modern context, and, and all of that. Okay, Revelation 1 through 3 is where we're going to focus in on here. Really, chapter 1, and then we'll talk about pieces of 2 and 3. Uh, so, open up Revelation 1. I'm not entirely sure how we'll do this, because I don't necessarily want to read every single Old Testament occurrence. I think we'll read from some sections specifically, uh, but we'll look at it this way first. Okay, opening chapter of Revelation provides us with a series of descriptions and titles of Jesus. Most of these are either explicit Old Testament quotes, uh, or at least find their foundation within the Old Testament text. Uh, and then I've kind of broken up really into three parts here. And I do have page numbers now, so that's good. Uh, so the third section's on page two. But we'll read through the Revelation passages and note uh, some of these connections here. Uh, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, and that'll come back around to one of the letters of the churches in chapter three. Uh, the firstborn of the dead uh, is not a direct quote from Psalm 89, but does have a uh, foundation there. And the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to God, uh, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That, that last phrase in particular is used in a number of places. Uh, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, uh, that's an explicit quote. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Zechariah 12 talks about that. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, Revelation is going to bring this up again at the very end of the book. So at the first and last of the book, we have first and last being used. Uh, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Uh, well, you could probably throw in with that very last one uh, the... Uh, the phrase given to Moses uh, when, when Moses is asked to go speak to Pharaoh and he says, what if they ask, you know, who I'm speaking to and all this, you know, I am who I am, uh, is that idea of who is and was is to come. Uh, I am. It's not, it is always present. Uh, so that idea I think is very good there. And that also goes uh, along very well with John's gospel and all of the I am statements that he prioritizes within his book. There's actually uh, a cycle of sevens with the I am statements. Maybe we'll bring that in to our seven discussion, which is not next week. I don't know when it'll be. Maybe it should be the seventh class. That makes sense. 
let's just do that. <laughs> That's a good idea. All right. Uh, but that idea of I am is this who is and who was and who is to come. So not an explicit quote, but definitely uh, foundational there. Next section, starting in 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And seven in connection with the lampstand is... Uh, Talked about a number of times in connection with the building of uh, the lampstands and their place within the temple, which might be significant. Uh, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, uh, Daniel 7 and 8 likes that phrase. Uh, Ezekiel uses son of man a lot, uh, but it's more in reference to uh, Ezekiel, the prophet. Uh, being, you know, son of man, uh, which I think matters. Daniel's context of son of man is uh, what he is seeing and that this person has the appearance of uh, the, the son of, uh, someone of, of man. And that seems to be probably more likely where John is coming from with that phrase and where Jesus is coming from with that phrase because Jesus calls himself son of man a lot. He likes that phrase. Uh, and so he's drawing on either or both Ezekiel and Daniel's usage of the phrase, which is different, uh, but important to note either way. Uh, one like the Son of Man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Daniel 10 is explicit. Uh, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. Daniel 7, also an explicit reference. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. That will come up in chapter 2 in one of the letters to the churches, but also it comes back up in 19. Uh, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Uh, the flame of fire and burnished bronze and all of that does show up in Daniel 10 there uh, and Ezekiel 43, and also that idea of voice was like the roar of many waters. There's also a lot of references when we have these uh, heavenly vision kind of depictions of voice of the multitude, which is similar uh, and maybe should be included here. We'll keep going. Uh, in his right hand, he held seven stars. That's in two of the letters to the churches. We come back to that. Uh, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, Isaiah 49 is ex an explicit reference. And then John will bring this up three more times, at least in Revelation. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Uh, maybe we can add a reference there to the ending part of Revelation where God is the light, but we'll talk more about that later. Okay, top of page two. We will read some Old Testament stuff here in a minute and not just talk about it. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Daniel 8, Daniel 10, also a bunch of other places. I, I didn't include every reference to every single thing, or this would be really, really long. <laughs> uh, but this idea of having a vision and, you know, becoming weak in the knees and falling down and all of this, extremely common. It's an appropriate reaction. Uh, so anybody who takes this stance of, because uh, I've heard an atheist make this claim before, uh, that if there is a God and he encounters him and all of that, he'll, you know, stand before him and ask, you know, how dare you or something like that. Uh, that's not true. 
probably going to fall at his feet as though dead because it's what everybody else does. Because uh, it's a terrifying thing. Uh, that phrase, well, every knee shall bow. Yeah, that's going to be involuntary. <laughs> every knee is going to bow because this is a big deal. And every time somebody comes into the presence of uh, God or even just these servants of God, uh, the, uh, the, the spiritual servants of God, you end up in this sort of way. Happens to Daniel at least a couple times. Uh, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. Isaiah brings this phrase up. Uh, three times, and then John will bring it back up in Revelation to one of the churches in chapter 2 uh, and at the end of the book. So again, out, like Alpha and Omega, first and last, which does mean the same thing, uh, are brought up at the first and the last part of, of the book for us. Uh, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That will become pretty significant as we move towards uh, the end of the book. Okay, Questions first, and then we'll uh, we'll read some stuff from somewhere. I don't want to say where because we have questions first. Uh, what do you notice about these quotation connections? Okay, and this is not me saying there's one thing I want you to notice. It's there could be multiple things here. What do you notice about just the listing of the quotes in in one and two? What comes up? There's a lot of stuff from Daniel. <laughs> a lot of stuff from Daniel. Again, yeah, it's a book of a lot of vision. Yes. So here's another book of a lot of vision. Okay. <laughs> yes. And question two is going to be why are these things significant? And that's part of it, right? Uh, so we have a lot of quotations from Daniel specifically, which is another very vision-oriented book, at least in the second half is very heavily that way. But it goes from heavy narrative with some vision to heavy vision with some narrative. That's how Daniel switches. Uh, but Daniel's quoted a lot here, uh, which is significant because they're similar in genre uh, and also similar in the context that we're dealing with. When is Daniel being written? What's going on historically? Exile. Exile. And uh, which is the people of Israel and a foreign nation being controlled by this power and all of those things. Isn't that where the Christians find themselves right here in the book of Revelation? Okay, there's maybe some intentionality to quoting about God's exiled people and what God is doing in all of that to these Christians that are undergoing persecution and what God is doing in all that. Okay, what else? So the visions of Daniel are of a lover of God, a priest, a man who prays every day. Mm -hmm. He's asking questions about what will happen in the future. And those are the visions about the future for Daniel. And in fact, one of the angels from heaven, I think Gabriel, is actually sent down and uh, tells Daniel these things that he's wanting to know. And so Daniel then has information about the next 600 years, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's presented by him by the writing to us as well, and we see that that actually did occur through the kingdoms of the earth. Uh, the last one, supposedly the last kingdom of the earth, universal kingdom, will be Rome, because Daniel is told. Right. So we see pictures of the future. Revelation, John is seeing his friend. Uh, John mm -hmm. is spoken of as the one whom Jesus loved, and he gets to heaven, and I suspect he uh, sort of expects to see his friend, the carpenter, uh, who's been walking around the last uh, 
30 years before when he was with him. Right. But what he sees is something totally different. When we see Jesus, we won't see the carpenter in Galilee. We will see this being because that's who he is after the death and resurrection and will live forever and have conquered death. So a couple things you said there that are significant, specifically in connection with Daniel, right, is the relationship that these people having the vision uh, with I, with their God, uh, John to Jesus, Daniel to uh, the Almighty here, but there's very much a relationship here between those individuals. But alongside that, what Daniel is talking about and what seems to be the what I think is pretty clear indicator within Daniel uh, is that Rome is discussed there, which won't be for a long time from Daniel's time frame. Daniel's long dead uh, by that point. Uh, but Revelation then picks up almost like it's the conclusion of what was being pointed to in Daniel. Uh, there's a number of Daniel connections. In fact, if you'll turn over to Daniel, we're going to read some of that and stuff specifically. Uh, there are a number of connections between Daniel and Revelation. We will note those as we go. But Daniel seems like the most prominent book to study in connection with Revelation. Not the only one, because uh, we have Isaiah and Ezekiel pretty heavily too. Uh, and, I, and we had some Isaiah and Ezekiel mentions here. What context are Isaiah and Ezekiel written in? What's going on when those are being written? Concept of the Son of Man. Yes. Of God coming to earth and putting on flesh. And uh, where where are God's people when all that when those books are being written? Those books are being written either just before or during the exile. Yeah. The Babylonian captivity. Yeah. So they're also. We we have Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel as all exile literature that's being quoted and using some of this language here uh, that John is drawing from. Is it just coincidence that he's drawing from the exile literature, or is that by design, you know, as part of our thought process here? Okay. Is that Jack? Yes, yes. Uh, it, you know, it doesn't matter whether it, you go back and you look at the ones that are seem like they're connected with the New Testament or with the Old Testament. There is an over overriding theme there, and it is all powerful, yes. always in control. Yep. Uh, that we will we will be at, if, if we get in His presence, we will fall. We will not have a control of ourselves because of who He is, and yet He still points out. But I'm the first and the last. Mm -hmm. Don't fear me. Okay. So there's a difference between what we have always been taught too of fear God. And then he says, don't fear me. There's, those actually are not the same. Right. So yeah. I, there's a, there is an overriding thing about the overall power and control that I think that I see, no matter whether it's old or new. Yes. And I, uh, Daniel 7, when we read here in a minute, I think is going to really bear that out. Okay, go ahead. If, if you want to give me the Reader's Digest or go, because I don't want to take up all your time. Go for it. But verse 5. Um, yes, uh, chapter 1. Yeah, do okay. you see that as a as a as a future? It says he's the firstborn and the ruler of the kings of the earth, mm -hmm. but not everything is under the lordship of Christ. Sure. So, how do you see? How do you see that? again? I don't want to take you too far off, but I think that's an important. 
yeah. aspect. If you'd like to answer it at a different time. That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> it's a good question. I want to make sure. So I know the, the firstborn concept from a New Testament standpoint is expressed in Colossians. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15 as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, different books, different authors mm -hmm. even. Yeah. So, that's, so it gets a little interesting that way. Uh, but the he's an image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh, that sort of idea. Uh, so there, I think you could ask the same question of, okay, he's this preeminent. Uh, I, I think we understand firstborn to not be Jesus was the first thing created. That's not what is being expressed there. Don't really have time to go into that. That isn't what's being said. Uh, we can do that another time. Uh, not what's being said there, but you have this idea of all of these things are his, created through him, for him, and all of that. But we know rulers, powers, not all those things are subject to him. Uh, so there is a present truth to that, but also, I should not hit the table, what the recorder. There's a present truth to that, but there's also a thing that's happening in the present to make that, I guess, fully Right, the future realization. Yeah. What I guess to what I'm saying is, is here is that is is, is is he seeing that as a present in a vision as the as the realization or is it is it hmm. on this spectrum? Hmm. So again, if you want to go on and no, that's a good wanna, question. I do not want to mess up your your deal, but I've always struggled with that that there's this this diversity of language between and yeah. I understand Paul's idea of the present. You know, here, you know, the Holy Spirit's here, here, but it's also the consummation in the, in the future. Right. But I'm just asking what, how he, how, how John sees it here. Not a question I've actually thought much about, yeah. which is why I like this question. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to think more about it and give you a good answer. Good. But, but I do think there's something to one of the things that we've read here about. Well, now, now I've lost my phrase. Uh, who is and who was and who is to come. Like we do have, uh, I, I wonder if John isn't seeing and talking about all of this stuff in addressing their present situation, having understanding that there's also things to come but and running backwards into the past as well. And just acknowledging that God has always been present and, and ruling over these things, even when evil is going. That's true here in their present context, true in our present context, which is their future context, and will eventually be fully true. So I, I don't know. I wonder if John's just not holding all those things together here yeah. uh, with some of the phrases he used, even the alpha and omega first and last kind of idea of he is looking backwards, but he's also looking ahead to find answers for the present that they're in. You know, so is he over these things? Yes, but also not fully there, you know, that sort of thing. I think he, I think my answer now would be John's holding all those things together at one time, all that tension, which is what we're asked to, to live in. It's that tension of he is, but there's still this work that's being done. And one day all these things will be subjected under Jesus fully uh, conquered and accomplished and all that? It's a good question. Okay. I'll think more about it. Okay, all right. <laughs> okay Daniel chapter 7. 
We'll start in verse 9. Yeah, 9 and 10, and then we'll skip down to 13. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. I look, uh, sorry, skipping down to verse 13. When, no, let's, let's read through. We don't need to do that. Let's understand Daniel's context. Uh, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. The horn's bad here. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We get that vision interpreted for us in the following verses. Uh, but we, uh, I, hopefully, you notice the language that John has pulled from here. Uh, there is a, and this, this is not a new idea, uh, this is not a new idea at all. It's new to me as of the last couple of years, uh, but it's it's not a new idea uh, in study, scholarship, whatever. Uh, when a old when an Old Testament quotation is used, uh, the suggestion is that the writer isn't just wanting you to read you know those two verses, uh, but to understand. Every, the place where those verses come from. So instead of instead of Matthew bringing up this entire chapter out of Isaiah or something, he would just quote these one or two verses. But the audience is going to have an understanding of the context of those verses and what was going on then, and that helps to inform what's happening now. You know, as Matthew's quoting it or as Paul is quoting it or whatever. So that being said, uh, as we're pulling from these places out of the beginning of seven, towards the end of seven here, even the stuff with, oh, there's horn and beast being destroyed and all of that. Yeah, we'll come back to this chapter uh, when we go through Revelation, because we have beasts and stuff getting destroyed there. Uh, but understanding what Daniel is dealing with, these powers ultimately being defeated uh, as they're going along, because God is over those things, conquers those things. And that there's going to be this kingdom that is set up that will never be destroyed. That's very relevant for the Revelation audience, who is living under one of these beasts of Daniel, living under one of these empires, uh, and dealing with all of the persecution and things that, that comes from that. And John is pulling from Daniel and these descriptions here to remind them the beasts have always been defeated. This beast will be defeated too. God has set up this everlasting kingdom, which is his church. Uh, we don't have time to go into that today, but that's pretty clear too uh, in Daniel and Revelation. Uh, that this kingdom has been established uh, with Jesus as the head of all of those things and that it will never be destroyed. Which they might be tempted to think. 
that, well, your kingdom is being destroyed. We're being persecuted and, and killed and all these things. I heard this idea uh, earlier this week and thought it was rather important. We read Revelation and look at the persecution and worry. we won't get there, I think, for a couple of weeks uh, where you have the martyrs crying out from under the throne, God, when will you avenge and all of this? And we look at that and think about uh, kind of like a Hebrews 11 idea. All those that have gone before us, that sort of idea. They would be thinking about their family and friends that they know died. They were living that. They were living revelation. Uh, So they would have people that they loved that were killed because of their witness to Christ. And so there's a very present context for them of fear and is the church falling apart, and is Rome going to destroy us, and John pulls from Daniel to say this is just another beast, and they will lose. God will destroy them, as he always does, and will bring about this ultimate uh, resolution to those things. Let's jump into Daniel chapter 10 as well. What do I want to read specifically? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Starting in verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of uh, a multitude. Okay, this is another description that is getting pulled from Daniel into Revelation chapter 1. And part of the significance of that is Daniel is in a persecuted, exiled, they're not the superpower, they aren't, you know, Jerusalem was a a large power within the world, especially under Solomon, uh, where they had all this wealth, these large armies, all of these things, and then they fell apart from there. Uh, But it's written in this time of even though you're not home, uh, even though you're scattered and all of this, God is still God. And he is still present and these things will pass and all of that. Uh, And bringing that into the Revelation context, all of that same encouragement is needed. God is still God. His kingdom is still everlasting. He is still the Almighty and these things will pass. Uh, Everything will end up okay. Uh, So that's part of the significance of understanding (coughs) Daniel specifically today, but the Old Testament, and knowing that John is trying to bring in that context. Say, this this is not the first time this has happened. God God didn't get uh, hoodwinked here of, oh man, I didn't know this power was going to rise up. I don't know what to do here. It's not happening to God. God has already seen this stuff. And God has already beat these kinds of things. And so the Christians that are hearing these descriptions of Jesus uh, need to keep that stuff in mind. We're not going to get to the the other things on (laughs) chapter 3. Okay, I want to talk about another phrase specifically here. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, you'll flip back to that book. We have the word or title, the scripture here, Lamb. Starting in chapter 5, and I have all the references there for you in those parentheses. 
quite lengthy, and you'll notice it starts in five and runs through the end of the book. Uh, we have a lot of interaction with the lamb and watch what the lamb is doing and are in the presence of the lamb through John's writing. Uh, the lamb is the centerpiece of everything that's taking place here. Okay, so Jesus, is, we get Jesus' descriptors from the very beginning, drawing Daniel in and bringing that story into it, or bringing, those, uh, bringing the, that context into this. Uh, and then we focus in on the Lamb and continue to keep Jesus as this focal point for all of the Revelation. Uh, the Lamb is a term that is going to speak uh, very opposite of how we would maybe anticipate things going. Okay, these other nations and kingdoms, you can read this in Daniel, we'll read it in Revelation too. The descriptors of these other kingdoms and stuff are lions and bears and eagles, all these incredible predatory animals, that sort of thing. Yeah, strong, associated with strength. That's why, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't set up your football mascot and say we're the you know, or the cream puffs or something like that. You wouldn't do that because it doesn't speak to power. It doesn't, doesn't, what a lame mascot that would be, you know? And maybe it's a baking school and I'm being too harsh on this fictional school I've come up with. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't pick that. It doesn't communicate power. There's no fear involved with that. But bears and, and lions and those sorts of things, those speak to powerful entities. And we will have those descriptors for these positive, these good spiritual beings uh, as well, but lamb is the predominant idea. Okay, lambs are not powerful and strong. They're the things that get eaten and destroyed. In fact, this one did get slain, and that's the description of it, and we'll talk about that, uh, but it continues to exist. And peace is ultimately going to be, because that's where this ends, true, actual peace, order of the creation, all of this, uh, is brought about because of the lamb. Go ahead. You sure? Yes. I think I know what you're going to say. Is it go ahead? <laughs> no, you brought up you, 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 earlier when you, something just flashed in my head when you said about the, the people living the life at the time. Yeah. The martyrdom that, that happened. If Rome and any other authority is seen as oppressive to the Christians. What's interesting, what you said about that is, is not their martyrdom the victory over the oppressors? Yeah. And because there's that, there's that, there's that quote, I can't remember who said it, but the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And as these people are do witness to the death of, of Christ in their own bodies, the kingdom grows. Yep. Within that ma in that manner, which changes society. Which you can you can just see that as you can just see that in Acts. Okay, you can just get out of the apocalyptic stuff, go straight to Acts and go, wow, how'd this church thing spring? Well, because persecution and starting to drag them in and, and even kill these Christians. And the church just exploded more as a result uh, of those sorts of things. But yeah, their, their martyrdom is victory in, in the war here. Which is a very weird right. concept. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is, is this lamb idea. Jesus says the lamb goes back to Genesis uh, when Cain and Abel were told to offer mm -hmm. the blood of a lamb. Yes. <clears throat> the lamb was an innocent young thing 
lamb, uh, sheep, or goat are interchangeable there at age 10 right. months. Uh, they have no conscience. They have no uh, need to obey God. They are what they are, and they represent innocent blood. Jesus represents innocent blood from the time of the creation all the way to the time when he shed his innocent blood yes. on a Roman cross and created the one kingdom that will never be destroyed. Okay, yes, and, uh, well, let's talk about that. That's right where we're going. <laughs> Very good. Okay, um, you, have all the, you have all those references there. Feel free to look those up uh, as you want, or, you know, keep not doing the homework and extra study and whatever. Uh, you know, if you like the Bible, it's there, you can study more. Uh, this is a term that John likes uh, at the beginning of his gospel, uh, this isn't said by John the author, it's said by John uh, the Baptist, but uh, you have twice, well, when, when John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, that is, uh, John 1 also begins with a series of descriptions of who Jesus is, in the same way that Revelation has here. <coughs> All these series of descriptors, and Lamb is another one of those prominent ideas uh, as, we, as we start that book. Uh, but it's also, and Wes laid some of this out here, it's a very prominent idea throughout the Old Testament. It's not that the term Lamb itself is uh, connected to the Messiah specifically, like the Messiah is not labeled Lamb uh, is what I mean, but the, the significance of Lamb. And specifically, a dying lamb is heavy throughout the Old Testament. Here's a few places. Yes. Um, so I didn't go to the Cain and Abel part, but I brought out that first one there. Uh, we're like midway through page two, the indented part. In the account of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son Isaac, uh, Abraham tells his son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Uh, and there's, there are so many parallels between Genesis 22 and Jesus, what God does with, with his son and all this. You know, your, your only son, whom you love, that sort of idea is there in Genesis 22. All that's important because the promise made to Abraham ultimately leads to Jesus. So we get a very Jesus picture in Genesis 22. We did a lesson on that, you know, forever ago uh, on our Sunday night, but... Good, uh, good thing to read back through. But it establishes the idea of uh, lamb being sacrificed in the place of others. Happens in Genesis 22. Very connected to Jesus' themes, we'll say it that way, uh, that we see later. Uh, then we jump into Exodus 12, uh, entering, in, introducing us to the practice of Passover, something the Jewish people would keep as command uh, on a yearly basis. That was uh, a, uh, a feast week they were to enjoy. Exodus 12, 1 through 6 specifies the process of selection, lays out the importance of lamb without blemish, and if you remember the starting point of the Passover, it is the, the blood of the lamb that keeps them from facing death. This other thing dies instead. This lamb dies instead, and its blood keeps them from death. For that year. Yes. Uh, so that, that continues to be uh, an important theme. Next, the one I think is important to highlight here, and we'll come back to this. Isaiah paints a picture of a future where the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, 
and graze together. The wolf, so the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Uh, the second of these references in Isaiah 65, the, the last several chapters of Isaiah uh, is all about this new heavens, new earth idea, which John's going to take that phrase and bring it up at the end of his book, and we'll bring it up at the end of our series of classes, because it's the best part. We're saving it for last. Uh, but John wants to bring these ideas from Isaiah about true peace, because wolf and lamb aren't normally going to hang out together, at least not for very long, uh, before something occurs. But we have a picture here where these two things that would normally be at odds are now going to have uh, this dwelling peace together in this future. John's going to draw from that idea as well, but lamb continues to be just this important theme. Uh, the lamb is one that has been slain. This is the bottom of page two. Uh, I tried to use, I don't think all of the references are brought up here, but this is what we have. Lamb has talked about the one that's been slain, has spilled his blood for others. The lamb is regarded as worthy of worship. The lamb accomplishes the will of God. The lamb marries his bride, the church. The lamb has 12 apostles. He is the temple, the lamp. His book is the barrier for entry, the Lamb's book of life, uh, and from him the water of life will flow, which is also a John's gospel idea. Throughout Revelation, the Lamb is slain but still standing, conqueror of God who brings to an end sin and its consequences by redeeming his people from sin and bringing us to a new creation where only righteousness dwells. Uh, so you have this huge theme that runs from five through the end of the book about Jesus being the Lamb and why that's that seems to be the most significant descriptor given to Jesus throughout this book, uh, especially in contrast with beasts and very specifically the dragon, the serpent of all. Lamb versus dragon, we would take the dragon every time. Uh, but the lamb's the one that wins. And we'll talk more about that. White wolves. All yes. Of the pictures of purity of Jesus are that he has the innocence of the lamb and it's shown through his yes. risen physical thing he looks different he's shiny he's white uh, when you see him you think oh this is all because of the lamb yes and we'll talk more about that idea a little bit too let make sure you look at the back of page four it summarizes why that bringing the old testament context in and we talked about it bringing other times of God's people being under persecution and showing how that played out. God's not surprised. He's going to do the same thing here. Uh, the next phrase that we'll deal with, maybe. Maybe, because we didn't look at the descriptions of these heavenly being things, and maybe we'll do that in connection with the bad ones too, through Revelation. But every tribe and language and people and nation is a phrase that's used. We saw it. Uh, in Daniel today, also in Revelation 1. It occurs a lot more times. Uh, so just be on the lookout for those uh, and answer why you think that might be significant. And maybe we'll do that next week or maybe we'll talk about weird stuff. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks for being here.